0: As Bruce said, if you could locate Genesis chapter 28, which means we're no longer in chapter 27, so we're we're moving, not terribly fast, but we're enjoying the ride, at least I am enjoying it, I don't know how much you guys are enjoying it, just keep it to yourself, it might hurt my feelings. We're in that section um, where we're dealing with Jacob, and essentially what God is doing is he is raising up a nation, the nation of Israel, very important nation because without that nation we wouldn't have Jesus, we wouldn't have the scriptures, and we wouldn't have the coming kingdom. Because God has purpose to bless the world through the nation of Israel. And when God began his work in and through Israel, he first began it through Abraham. Those promises were transferred to Isaac and now we see Jacob in full light here as he is God's man. Some interesting things happened at the end of chapter 27. There was deception. Jacob deceived Isaac into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. That led to Esau's rage. Rage to the point where Esau is now contemplating or purposing to kill Jacob. And that leads to a lie. It's actually lie number two. I mean, this this stuff is better than soap operas right here. We've got deception, we've got rage, and we've got a second lie. When Jacob's mother, Rebekah, got word of the fact of Esau's murderous intention, she said, we've got to get Jacob out of here. We've got to get him to a place called Haran, which we'll see exactly where that is in just a minute. And, of course, when Rebecca hatched this plan along with Jacob, they really didn't tell Jacob's father, Rebecca's husband, Isaac, the truth. It was a half-truth. It was given at the end of chapter 27. We've got to get him out of here so he can marry the right person. We don't want him to marry a Canaanite. Legitimate thing to say, a legitimate goal. It just was not the complete truth. The complete truth is we've got to get him away from Esau so he is not murdered. And so what you have from that point of the story into chapter 28 is Jacob's flight to Haran, verses 1 through 5. Sort of a a parenthetical glimpse into Esau as he's marrying his third wife. That can't be good, can it? But then you get to verses 10 through 22 and the whole Abrahamic covenant is reconfirmed to Jacob so beautifully in a place called Bethel. Which means, as we will see, house of God. But today, um, if time permits, we're going to try to get through verse 5. Maybe if we get on a roll here through verse 9. But we see Jacob's flight to Haran. Uh, first of all, Jacob is summoned by Isaac. And it says there in chapter 28, verse 1, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. He called him. He blessed him. He doesn't really understand why Jacob is fleeing to Haran. He's kind of operating under the false idea that it has to do with his wife, which is future wife, which is part of the picture. But it's really a plot to get him out of harm's way, hatched by Rebecca and Jacob. It's interesting that he summoned, Isaac summons Jacob, and then he blessed him. You kind of get the impression here that isaac has finally woken up to what god said in genesis 25:23 the older shall serve the younger i mean the blessing was designed to go to jacob anyway not esau isaac really doesn't seem to be fitting into that mindset in chapter 27 as he wants to bless esau rather than jacob but apparently there's some growth in isaac For his understanding is being expanded, that the older shall serve the younger. It was always God's intention for the blessing to go to Jacob rather than Esau. I I love the idea that there's spiritual growth in these biblical characters. I'm really not the man I was last year, but I'm certainly not the man I should be. I, I see growth in my life. I see my understanding of Scripture opening up more and more. And one of the most interesting things is to listen to an audio tape of a sermon that you gave five years ago, ten years ago. And you say to yourself, wow, I, I sure missed that point there, and this point could have been developed more, and why didn't I bring that up or this up? And it has to do with the normal growth process of a Christian. I don't have any corner on God. It's something that he'll do for all of us. And that's why when you read the Bible, it's not the kind of book that you say, okay, I get it, and you put it away, I'm going to move on to something else. God is always having us review the books of the Bible Because there are things that perhaps we didn't see before. I mean, it's the same book, but our understanding of it, our ability to apply it, our knowledge, our wisdom has increased. I hope that's happening in your life. I hope the Lord is constantly showing you new insights and new things. I don't want to be a static Christian. I don't want to ever get to the point where I say to myself, well, I've arrived, I'm finished with Genesis, I'm finished with Exodus, I already read those. In fact, I I ran into a Christian that that, that told me that once. I was making some comments about a book of the Bible that I had been studying and he sort of made the comment years back that, "Oh, oh yeah, I already read that, I know that. And at the time I thought to myself, I hope I never get like you. I didn't say it to his face, believe it or not. But I just thought to myself, I hope I never get that way, where my cup is full and the Lord has showed me enough and, you know, let's go on to other things. That does not That's not how it works in your relationship with the Lord. There are constant new insights. The book is the same, but your knowledge of it deepens as you walk with the Lord. I think that this is what is happening in the life of this character, Isaac. And so he calls Jacob and he blesses Jacob and he actually gives Jacob some instructions regarding taking a wife in Canaan. He says something negative, end of verse 1 to be followed by something positive, verse 2. In other words, here's what to to avoid, end of verse 1, here's what to embrace, verse 2. Second part of verse 1, chapter 28, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. That word charge is interesting. It's the idea of a solemn commissioning. Paul, when he wrote to young Timothy, who was seeking to be the pastor at the church at Ephesus, said this in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I solemnly charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What expositional pastoral ministry is all about. This is not some kind of ministry option. It's an actual charge from God, a charge coming from Paul to Timothy, making that charge in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate judge who is bringing his kingdom to the earth. Why do we do what we do at Sugarland Bible Church? We don't do it to be popular because there's many other ways in the life of Christianity today to be popular. We don't do it to fill the house with a large crowd because there's easier ways to do that. We we do what we do because this is what God charged us to do. Preach the word in season, out of season. Do it when it's popular. Do it when it's not popular. Do it when it's in vogue. Do it when it's not in vogue. Do it when people like it. Do it when people... Reject it. Just Do it. Because Jesus is coming back. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And he's going to judge you, Timothy, for your handling and diligence and proclamation of God's word. Here's a similar charge being given to Jacob by his father Isaac as Isaac is being sent away. And charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Why the admonition against marrying a Canaanite? Because the Canaanites are under a curse. The issue with the Canaanites is not skin, but it's sin. They were involved, and we've explained this many times, in incomprehensible sins. And God, as a result, put them under a curse because of what they were doing and their lack of repentance. This charge goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. It says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity or the wrongdoing of the Amorite, that's a Canaanite group, is not yet complete. The Canaanite civilization is under the judgment of God. It just hasn't been executed yet. It would be executed by Joshua, who was given the command to go into the land of Canaan and to slaughter the Canaanites after 400 years. It says here the fourth generation where there was no repentance. And so since this is the... Lot and the plight of the Canaanites, why in the world would a man of God like Jacob take a Canaanite for his wife? This is why when we study Genesis chapter 24, if your eyes are real good, they've got to be better than mine apparently. There was so much information about Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, how that marriage took place outside of the land or his marriage partner, I should say, came outside of the land of Canaan in a place called Haran. And we studied that passage in depth and how God put everything together so that Abraham's servant could meet Rebecca and bring Rebekah back to Isaac for marriage. Why the trouble with going outside of the land of Canaan to secure a marriage partner for Isaac, it has to do with the fact that the Canaanite civilization is under a curse. The, the New Testament would call this a warning against being unequally yoked. Paul the Apostle in Second Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 16 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, believers, are the temple of the living God, just as we said. The Bible is pretty clear that we are in the world, but not of the world. And because we are not of the world, we are not to form alliances with people that have a different value system than we have. Now we can apply that to marriage, that's typically how it's applied, but you can apply that to any number of situations, a close business partnership, for example, don't intentionally put yourself in a situation where you're bound together with an unbeliever because essentially what's going to happen over the course of time, as we've seen with the case of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, a believer living in a wicked city, is the tail will start to wag the dog. You you go into those relationships thinking, I'm going to change them, And really what happens is over the course of time, you change rather than them. I know we're living in a society where young men and women feel this intense pressure to get married. And God, I think, honors marriage. But at the same time, you don't want to be in such a rush that you put yourself in a situation where you're married to someone that you're really not equally yoked to. This happens a lot when a mature believer marries an immature believer. We typically think of it as a a believer marrying an unbeliever, but it can happen where a, a spiritual believer marries a carnal Christian. Careful about that. Heed the warnings of the Holy Spirit on that. Because essentially what will happen over the course of time is your values will start to shift to the point where God really can't use you as a beacon of light that He wants to, that He wants to in your life. We have a voice to the world when our lifestyle is separate from the world. Now, once we adopt the value system of the world is the moment we lose our platform to speak with authority to the world. That's why when Lot, who understood that Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed, Genesis 19, he spoke to his own family members, his in-laws, we need to get out of this city. And they just didn't take him seriously because they thought he was jesting. Oh, there goes Lot again, joking around. No credibility to speak, and it has to do with the compromise in his life. Did Lot lose his salvation? No. Did he lose his effectiveness in ministry? Yes, he did. Even to his own family members that desperately needed the message that Lot was delivering. Be careful about being unequally yoked. And thus, Jacob is sent to a faraway place, not amongst the Canaanite women, to get married. And then he moves from a negative to a positive. Here's what to do. As Isaac is speaking to Jacob, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. From there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So there's a family tree here. Abraham has a brother named Nahor. Nahor is married to a woman named Milcah. Milcah has, along with Nahor, several children. Number eight there is Bethuel. Bethuel is actually the father, if I have this right, of Rebecca. So leave where you're at in the land of Canaan and go to where my people are, where your mother's people are, a different mindset, a different value system, people that aren't under the judgment of God because they're Amorites, and it's from there you're to take a wife. And so Isaac dismisses Jacob on those grounds to go to Haran, which is excellent advice for us. It's just Jacob, excuse me, Isaac at this point doesn't have the full story, that the reason for the dismissal to Haran relates to the fact that Esau is now in a murderous rage to kill Jacob. And it's in the midst of these instructions that Isaac reconfirms to Jacob the covenant that he has. Again, he seems to be waking up. Earlier it was said in Genesis twenty-five twenty-three, the older shall serve the younger. See, Isaac, it's so interesting, wasn't blessing Jacob in chapter 27. He was blessing the wrong man. Now, I guess he's learned from his mistakes and he's blessing the right person. You know, the truth of the matter is, as a Christian, you're gonna make mistakes. I've made, I could write a book about mine, several volumes. The issue isn't so much have you made a mistake or made an error, the issue is have you learned from the mistake. You know, Some people make a mistake and they never learn anything of it and they make the mistake again and they make the mistake again. And when we mess something up, we just need to be honest before the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? I, I really didn't do well in that situation, but I, I want to grow through it. I, I want you to use that cir- circumstance to bring me to a higher level of maturity. Rather than being disobedient as I was, I want to be obedient the next time around. And if we have that sort of um, heart towards God, it's amazing the growth that we would see in our personal lives this year in the year 2023. Isaac didn't have a down pat. He made some goofs, he made some errors, but boy, he seems to be learning. And that's why God allows us to go through different circumstances. Don't look back at your life and say, well, you know, God can't use me because I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did that wrong. Look back at your life and say, you know what, I I did some things wrong. But look at what I've learned. Look at how I've grown. Look at how I've matured. And so Isaac here gives this blessing upon Jacob. And he, in the process, starts to reemphasize The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed at this point. And it's interesting, in this chapter, God is going to reaffirm the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob at Bethel, beginning in verse 10. But even before God gets into the act of reaffirming the covenant to Jacob at Bethel, beginning at verse 10, Isaac reminds Jacob as he's being sent to Haran, Of the blessings that he already possesses. That's why we have, um, entitled this particular message, The Blessings of God. We are already radically, radically, radically blessed, as Jacob was, sometimes without even realizing it. So, notice what he says here in verses 3 and 4. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And may he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you, to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. By my count, there are six blessings here. The first blessing is just having a blessing. There it is in verse 3. May God Almighty bless you. Do you realize that as a Christian you're already blessed? So many Christians are seeking a blessing from God, and yet the biblical understanding is you're already blessed? You were, you were blessed in God the moment you put your faith in Christ as your Savior. Something happened to you. Something happened to your ledger. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In other words, it already happened. With 92%, no, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The moment you put your faith in Christ for salvation is the moment God took your spiritual bank account and maxed it out. And we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, bless me, bless me. And the Lord is saying, well, what else do you want? I mean, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that becomes the motivation for living differently. I don't live differently to get blessed. I live differently because I am blessed. And if I don't live in a way that's pleasing to God in my daily life, I am simply living in a way that's inconsistent with my identity and who I am. You look at uh, so-called Christian television and the emphasis that they place on giving money coincidentally, it's always you've got to give money to their ministry. Please give or we're going to go under as if God is down to his last buck and poor God can't subsidize ministries anymore. People have to get on the air and beg and plead. And so the, the hook is if you give to this ministry, God will bless you. So people are giving to get blessed. That's not why a Christian gives at all, financially, of their time, talent, and treasure. Here I'm speaking of economic resources. You don't give to get blessed. You give because you already are blessed. I mean, God owns it all anyway, right? Boy, I can't believe what the Lord has done for me. I I can't believe that I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and so I give accordingly. And maybe the reason why people have such a struggle in this area of giving is they don't really understand who they are in Christ Jesus. They don't understand what they have. They don't understand their spiritual ledger. They don't understand their spiritual bank account. And so before Jacob goes out and does anything, good or bad, by way of obedience or disobedience, his father just reminds him that he's already blessed Because he's tied into the Abrahamic covenant. Second thing that's promised to him there, it's right there in verse 3, is fruitfulness. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, productive. His descendants are going to be so numerous that they are analogized to, in other areas of Scripture, the sand of the seashore, the dust of the earth. The stars of heaven, which can't even be counted. That is what is going to happen through Jacob as the nation of Israel is being birthed and developed. The multiplication of seed giving rise to an individual seed, Jesus, coming through this nation. Along those same lines also in verse 3, he's reminded that his seed will not, he will not just be fruitful, but it will multiply. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Spiritual multiplication. Biological multiplication. One of the things that the Lord wants to do in all of our lives is he wants to take our meager time, talent, and treasure and he wants to multiply it. You know, just we're almost stunned at this church where we can sit here and teach the Bible verse by verse and because of the technology that God has given us we can be a blessing to people all over the world. In fact, at our prophecy conference coming up, most of the people coming will be out-of-town people. Well, you should probably get here Sunday a little early if you could, because we don't want any fistfights over chairs and that kind of thing. But but it's just stunning as you travel and you run into the people that tell you over and over again that they have been people you never even met people you 're not even on a first name basis with that they've been blessed by your ministry i 'm shocked to some extent over the multiplication of this ministry simply via relatively inexpensive media and and it's i don't we have no corner on God here God will do the same thing for you in whatever venue he has for you. I mean what was the lad to do other than to give jesus a few fish, and a few loaves. I mean, all he really had to do was put those things into the hands of Jesus, and Jesus did the multiplication. Jesus is really good at multiplication. He's really good at addition. If need be, he's really good at subtraction. But he is really, really good at multiplication. And so as you walk with the Lord and the Lord begins to use your life as a blessing to other people, don't let it catch you off guard. God is in the multiplying business. In verse 3, part of this multiplication is the fact that you may become, end of verse 3, a company of peoples. A nation is coming into existence through you, Jacob. And what a nation it will be. Twelve tribes, which we're going to start reading about around chapters 29 and 30. There's going to be, if memory is, serves, there's going to be kings. Nineteen in the northern kingdom, twenty in the southern kingdom. This, this is a, this is a real nation that's going to come into existence. It's going to occupy land. It's going to have control of the, the borders of that land for eight centuries. And then they're going to be disobedient and being taken out of the land, and God's going to bring them right back. And then they're going to be disobedient again in rejection of their own king, and they're going to be pushed into worldwide dispersion for roughly 2,000 years, and God is going to bring them right back. And we see the hand of God today. In these promises as the nation of Israel has been miraculously regathered from the four corners of the earth in preparation for God's end time program right on time. Why is this happening? Why can't the anti-Semites get rid of Israel? Why is it that every time the nation of Israel is attacked, not only does Israel survive, but she actually gets a holiday out of it? Have you noticed that Purim in the book of Esther, Hanukkah with the desecration of the temple in the intertestamental period by Antiochus Epiphanes? Why can't the Jew haters get rid of the Jews? And they've tried. And they're still trying. Some of them are in our own Congress, I'm embarrassed to say. Calling the Jewish people the Benjamins in a sort of a disparaging way. Disparaging the Jewish people. Why can't they get rid of the Jewish people? Because God's hand is on them. They have a covenant from God. Jacob, you're to walk in this covenant. And as you walk in this covenant... Watch what I'm going do to do in and through you via multiplication. You're going to be a company of people. And then going down to verse 4, he says, may he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Notice the reference to Abraham here. Abraham in promissory form, Genesis 12. In covenant form, Genesis 15, was promised land, seed, and blessing. And how that becomes the foundation of all of God's promises to the nation of Israel. The the land component will be developed in the land covenant later on. Deuteronomy 29 and 30. The seed is going to be developed in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16. The, The blessing will be developed in what's called the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But the fountainhead of it all. The foundation of it all is God taking a man named Abram and putting him to sleep as God alone, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through those animal, severed animal pieces organized in two parallel rows. And God is saying, if I don't do exactly what I promised to do for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then let me be torn asunder. As these animals have been torn asunder in this common ancient Near East covenant. And those promises were passed on to Isaac. Isaac's promises are now passed on to Jacob. And that's why there's a reference there to Abraham there in verse 4. The blessings of Abraham to you and to your descendants. You'll notice also that he promises him land. That's also in verse 4. That you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. And according to the prophet Ezekiel, when the nation of Israel is pushed out of their land, Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25, God says, I'm going to bring you back into your own land. It's interesting how poor of a job Ezekiel would have been as a news commentator for CNN. Because there they make the case that the Jews must be living in someone else's land. That's not what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel said, you're going to dwell in your own land. That land belongs to the Jewish people. And although they don't control every square inch of that land, in the millennial kingdom they will. It's a, a tract of real estate that... Goes all the way from modern day Egypt to modern day Iraq, from the Nile to the Euphrates. And God will work in history to make sure that every minute detail is fulfilled. And you should praise the Lord for that. You know, a lot of Christendom, they don't teach on these kind of passages and they sort of look at the Jewish people as a nuisance the Christ killers, the Christ rejectors, and, and teaching like this is almost a, a, an abomination to them. It's, it's an anathema. They don't like the modern state of Israel. In fact, there's a lot of big name people I could talk about, which I won't, that have been over backwards trying to say that the modern state of Israel means absolutely nothing in the outworking of God's purposes. No, the modern state of Israel means everything. Because it vindicates, its very existence vindicates God's character as a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And, boy, I look at the modern state of Israel, I don't get angry with it. I say, well, praise the Lord, God keeps his word. And if God is going to keep his word to the Jew, he's also going to keep his word to you. Because God has made you promises. Eternal security, glorification, on and on we week ago. How, how, how do you even know God is going to execute those promises? Because he has a track record. If God broke his word to Israel, then he's going to break his word to you as well. His character is untrustworthy. This is why Paul, at the height of the promises that he makes to the church at the end of Romans 8, has sort of an excursus. I mean, it's not even an excursus. It's, it's central to his argument where he gets into the subject of Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Israel in the past elected, Romans 9. Israel in the present rejected, Romans 10. Israel in the future accepted, Romans 11. Why go into all that? It's a vindication of who God is. Because if God can't keep his word there, how in the world could you ever trust him with the promises he's given to us? at The end of Romans 8. The nation of Israel is not something to curse. It should be part of our worship whereby we praise God on account of his faithfulness and then after enumerating these six blessings we have the departure of Jacob and it says there in verse 5 then Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban son of Bethuel the Aramean the brother of Rebekah the mother of Jacob and Esau and so there Jacob goes 450 miles from the land of Israel up north to Haran. Ur in the east, the far right of the screen, that's where Abraham came from. Eventually he settled there in the west, the land of Canaan, adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea. And just as Isaac left that area... Or I better, better said Abraham's servant left that area to get a wife for Isaac. Now Jacob is leaving that area for purposes of marriage. Although the real purpose is if I don't get out of here, I'm gonna die. Uh, is in a murderous rage. And so Jacob begins this uh and it doesn't quite show up on the map, but that's a pilgrimage of four hundred and fifty miles. There's not even uh this isn't even part of a cruise or anything. Or at least a bus trip or something. I mean this is this is hard travel. One of the things I love about the Bible, and I mention this frequently, is how real the history is. I mean, by mentioning this uh, family tree that we've talked about a little earlier and by mentioning Haran, and there's different synonyms for it there, you can see in verse 5, you know, you get the impression that this, is, this really happened. And the reason we bring that up is because what we're being told in our culture is that the Bible really isn't history. You want history, you need to get it from the secular PhD. They know the history. You guys in the church, you're just doing religion. You're just doing the spiritual. And so our culture has driven a wedge between the historical and the spiritual. And what's wonderful is the Bible never reads that way. It presents it like it, as if it just ha- as if it really happened. Certainly there are tremendous spiritual lessons that we derive from it, learn from it, grow from. But when you're reading this book, folks, you're reading a historical document. And it needs to be approached with that level of respect. And then you come to verses 6 through 9 where what's happening in Jacob's life is sort of Contrasted now with what's happening in Esau's life, where Esau is not trending the right direction. It's obvious because he's picking up here his third wife. He obviously has no respect for God's marital standards. I did not create marital standards. When we mention marital standards, everybody gets mad at the, the preacher articulating them as if the preacher came up with them. Don't shoot the messenger. But God has a marital standard. His marital standard is one man for one woman for one life. Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24, which, by the way, are the two verses that Jesus himself quoted when he was questioned about marriage and divorce. He goes right back to the divine blueprint. So we're living in this society where everybody's trying to rewrite marriage as if we're in a position to do that. We didn't create marriage. If we created it, We could rewrite it and change it to whatever you want. God created it. Esau here obviously is violating it. He's not following the principles of heterosexual monogamy. So in contrast to Jacob's flight and obedience is sort of a parenthetical comment or comments concerning Esau the brother in the murderous rage who is not trending the correct direction. And Esau, you'll notice, is making some observations. The way this reads, verses 6 through 8, is Esau knew what was right. It's not him acting out of ignorance. He knew what was right because he was observing it in Jacob. But he was making a decision to rebel against what he knows is right. There's two mistakes you can make in your life. One of them is not having the information. The other one is knowing what's right and going the opposite direction. The Bible says, to him who knows what is right and rebels against that, to him it is sin. There are, you may not understand every nook and cranny of Christianity. You may not even grasp every little truth that comes across this pulpit. But I can guarantee you this much. There are things in your life that you know are right. And God is wanting to know what you're going to do with those things. Are you going to obey and submit to what you know is right? Or are you going to willfully disobey? Esau knew what was right because he could see the pattern of Jacob. But Esau went the opposite direction in this area of marriage. And he observed three things. The first thing he observed was Isaac's charge to Jacob, which we've just read. It's now in verse 6. Now Esau saw, see that? Esau's not ignorant. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Saw the charge to go to Haran. He knew very well the command not to take a Canaanite wife. What else did Esau observe in the life of Jacob, his brother? He observed Jacob's obedience. Verse 7. And that Jacob had obeyed. You should underline that word if you're an underliner. That's not a disease, by the way. It's just a... okay. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau watched Jacob obey in this narrow circumstance. And there's a pattern here. The pattern is Jacob is not obeying to get blessed. He's obeying because he already is blessed. And it's interesting that before you receive any information about Jacob's obedience, his blessings, six of them as we went through them, have already been given there in verses 3 and 4. Why should you obey God at the end of the day? Because you've been blessed. And if you disobey God you're living in a way that's inconsistent with your new identity. Now, having said all that, you know what's interesting about God is when you obey him, there's further blessings. Not so much of a positional nature. Your bank account's already maxed out. But of a temporal nature. God keeps adding blessings over and over again to the life of the Christian that's obedient to what they know. One of those blessings, I believe, is greater insight into his word. The reason God hasn't given many Christians new insight into his word in decades is because they haven't been faithful to what they do know. Why why would God trust any of us with further insight when we can't even be faithful to what we do understand? That's why if you want to grow as a Christian, maturity-wise, I'm not talking here about a birth truth. I'm talking about growth truths. If you do not want to be the same person spiritually in 2023 that you were in 2022, here's what you do. Everything you know is right, you start to obey that under God's power. And God, I believe, will trust you with more and more. And more. Gee, I I don't have any ministry opportunities. Well, have you been faithful with the ministry opportunities that God has given you? Maybe um, you're doing something that the eyes of the world would look at as menial. Why not just be faithful to that? And God, when he sees your faithfulness to that, can start to expand your sphere of influence. Jesus uh, in the upper room said this John 13 verse 17 if you know these things you are blessed if you do them notice the blessing comes from doing in this case and not by knowing knowing's great you got to know something or you wouldn't know what to obey That's called knowledge. But the blessings in the Christian life, according to John 13, verse 17, don't just flow from knowledge, gnosis in the Greek, but sophia, wisdom. What is wisdom? It's different than knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied. You want knowledge, read Ephesians one through three. There's no commands in those chapters for the Christian to follow. You want wisdom. Read chapters four through six of Ephesians, where there's 38 commands. You notice that Paul reveals knowledge with the expectation that that knowledge will lead to wisdom. You want wisdom. Boy, a great book to read. One of the most practical books you could ever read as a Christian is the book of Proverbs. You'll see stuff in there about managing money, managing emotions, managing the two-by-two slab of mucus membrane between the gums called the tongue. And then when you're finished with Proverbs, and by the way, you'll never finish Proverbs. Because God will keep showing you more and more and more. Then go over to the book of James. This good old Jimmy over there will step on your toes. Because he wants our knowledge to move into practice. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 22, the Lord's half brother, said, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Notice that if Gnosis is not transitioning, can I even use that word transitioning these days? Transforming. If Gnosis is not transforming into Sophia, then it's just a delusion. Because knowledge at the end of the day is not the height of spiritual maturity. Very important to understand this in Bible church settings like ours, where there's a heavy emphasis on the teaching of the word of God. You, you, you go to a church like that long enough and you think the, the object of spirituality is the accumulation of data. That's not what the Bible says. The accumulation of data is critical, it's central, but it was never intended by God to be the last step. It's the first step. As Gnosis turns into Sophia, as Gnosis turns into what the book of Proverbs calls Hokama, skillful living. Not the capacity to pass a doctrinal exam, but the ability to take the principles of God's word and live them out under divine power. This is how Jacob is growing, and Esau obviously is not. So Isaac, what did, what did Esau see? He saw Isaac's charge. He saw Jacob's obedience. He also saw Isaac, the dad's displeasure. And you see that there in verse 8. It says, so Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. He saw that Isaac was very clear to Jacob that to take a wife, do not take a Canaanite wife. Now, Esau has already messed that up. Because he's married to Canaanite women back in Genesis 26 verses 34 and 35. That was a great source of consternation to his parents because his parents came together because the servant of Abraham left the land of Canaan, went to Haran to get Rebekah and bring her back to Isaac, and now here's Isaac's oldest son, not learning a thing from his family tradition, just marrying whoever pleased him. The more he married whoever pleased him, the more it was displeasing to mom and dad. See, that's a that's a consequence of sin we really don't think about. Sin is of such a deleterious quality that its impact oftentimes spills over and injures people that you never thought were going to be injured by it. I would think that Esau was just trying to make himself happy. But as he was kind of doing what was right in his own eyes, he was injuring his, his parents was injuring his his mom and dad so in spite of these observations Esau performs a sinful action here and that's in verse 9 and we'll conclude with this and Esau went to Ishmael and married besides the wives he had so he's got two wives already We read about them in Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite. People under God's curse. Not because of skin, but because of sin. And Basmoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Hittites are part of the Canaanites and they the two daughters brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah now he is marrying in addition to two last time i checked 2 plus 1 is 3 i mean this is wife number 3 now he's doing the exact opposite of what his father <laughs> told Jacob to do now he's marrying an ishmaelite remember the ishmaelites Going back to Genesis 16, Abraham, at that time, Abram and Sarai, got tired of waiting upon the Lord. Boy, the Lord has taken a long time to fulfill his promises. We need to help God out. Poor God, how is he going to pull this off without human help? So Abram, Sarai develop a plan for Abram to impregnate the Egyptian bondservant, handmaiden, Hagar. And from that unholy union comes Ishmael and the Ishmaelites. That's who Esau is marrying into here with wife number three. Arnold Fruchtenbaum on verse 9 says, in Genesis 28 verse 9 is Esau's response. And Esau went unto Ishmael. Ishmael was no longer living, so this would mean he went to the house of Ishmael and took, besides the wives that he had, he already had two, and now he took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So basically he married his cousin, who was the sister of Naboth, to be his wife according to Genesis 36, verse 3, she was also known as Basemoth. So he chose. Contrary to the will of God, which was known because he had observed what Jacob was doing. Contrary to his parents' will, he chose in contradiction to that also. Now this becomes evidence why The blessings that are going to come to planet Earth are not coming through Esau. They're coming through Jacob. God's purpose is to bless the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew race, the Jewish race, and through that race is going to come three major blessings. Jesus, the Scripture, and the coming Kingdom. These blessings will not come through Esau's lineage. And that's why there's a contrast being developed here between Esau and what he is doing and Jacob. Esau is not the covenant son. In fact, any blessings that Esau has, and we studied some of those in chapter 27, is not in the land of Israel, but outside the land. Oh, gee, Pastor, why do I need to know that? Here's why you need to know that. We're living in an area right here that's rapidly Islamicizing. In fact, to, uh, I took a wrong turn. I can't remember the name of the street, but the light and the Islamic Cultural Center is right in front of it. It was... As you can see from me trying to read the announcements, my eyesight's not the greatest. I took an early turn into that nearby Islamic cultural center, and I could not believe the size of it. I kept saying to myself, this is so big. I mean, this is uh, like any evangelical megachurch parking lot that I've ever been in. For whatever reason... God has providentially put us Sugarland Bible Church in in a in an area where Islam is radically proliferating. Now, you can see that one of two ways. You can look at him as the enemy or you could look at him as souls for whom Christ died. But you have to understand that part of your ministry here at Sugarland Bible Church will be interaction with Muslims. In fact, they've come to our church trying to get us to go to their events. In fact, they're so good at what they do, they actually co-opted one of our visitors' bags. Did you know that? They put out a bag that looks just like ours that we give to visitors with a copy of John's Gospel in it. And fortunately, some of our elders had the discernment to look inside of that particular bag, and there's the copy of the Quran. With an invitation to come over to our cultural center for, you know, snow day and face painting and all of that kind of stuff. So that's where we are. They came right up to the church. I was standing there greeting people as they were leaving reached out my hand to shake the hand of two covered muslim women and they wouldn't touch me they said that's contrary to our religion I said don't worry about it i have that effect on a lot of people but they were just real interested in getting us to go over there and absorb their carnival like atmosphere with games for the kids face painting, because at the end of the day, we're all one happy family. Even the signs, you've seen them, where Islam and Judaism and Christianity are called common Abrahamic faiths. And I'm here to tell you that biblically the whole thing is a lie. Now, you might want to find a more skillful way of communicating that when you're talking to them. But they take all of these promises and they, they twist them around. You know, it's, it's Ishmael that's the favored, not Jacob. And they do the same sort of game with um, Jacob and Esau. Everything is reversed in Islam. That's why I'm bringing this stuff up. The land promises will not go to Esau. They will go to Jacob. The birth of the national blessings that God is going to come through planet Earth are not coming through Esau. I'm not saying God didn't love Esau. But they will not come through Esau. They will come through Jacob. Jesus, in John 4, when he was interacting with the woman at the well, said it as clearly as it could be said. It's in John 4, I think it's about verse 22, as he's interacting with a Samaritan woman. Salvation is of the Jews, is what he said. So we got to get this straight, given the climate that we're in. Good decisions, good consequences, bad decisions, bad consequences. Adam in Eden made a really bad choice. And we're still bearing the consequences for it today, aren't we? Death as a consequence of sin is a reality. We are physically dying. And if a person dies without Christ, their soul will spend eternity separated from God forever. In a place of conscious torment. Jesus, born from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came into the world to fix that problem. I don't know if you've seen this. uh, They're really big in the Super Bowl commercials, the He Gets Us campaign, how Jesus really came into the world to make the world a better place for open borders, really came into the world to make the world a better place for the transsexual lifestyle. And they've taken the person of Jesus and they've reduced him to a social reformer, sort of a Fidel Castro 2.0. Gets us campaign. Not only is that an abomination in terms of the politics of the whole thing, which slants left, But the bigger problem is it's an abomination because it reduces who Jesus is. It makes him less than what he is. What is he? He is the eternally existent second member of the Godhead who came into our world to fix the problem that Adam created. And he stepped out of eternity into time and bore the consequences for that bad decision in our place. And he proved he was God through his resurrection from the dead. That's who Jesus is. Open borders? What are you even talking about? Transsexual lifestyle? What Bible are you reading if if you're reading it at all? Jesus has to be restored to his rightful place. He is the creator. He is the one who spoke and the heavens and earth leapt into existence. And he is the one when his creation went astray, redeemed us. And because of what he did 2,000 years ago, every human being is savable. Now, they're not saved until they trust in the work of the Messiah, but they're savable. And that's what—that's who Jesus is. That's what he did. And so our exhortation week after week, teaching after teaching, sermon after sermon to those who may be in the building that are unsure of their salvation, may be listening online, unsure of their salvation, may be listening via archives long after the fact, unsure of their salvation as the Spirit convicts them of their need to do this and persuades them that they might, through volition, trust in Jesus alone and his redemptive work for their eternity and their salvation and the safekeeping of their soul. That's the gospel. There's not 12 steps here. There's one. It's to believe or to trust in the right object, which is Jesus Christ. And so we encourage people within the sound of my voice to do that. It's not something you have to raise a hand to do, join a church to do, walk an aisle to do, but it's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you trust in the work of the Savior so as to be saved. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Boy, I can't wait for next week for our prophecy teachers, and then the week after that, where we're going to be getting into verses 10 through 22 concerning Jacob's ladder—really a staircase. To quote that great theologian Led Zeppelin a stairway to heaven. And so we would invite you to read up on that for sermons forthcoming. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth. We're grateful for your word. Help us to walk these things out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,